Hello, and welcome to Small Findings. Small Findings is a podcast where I find things out, and I tell you about these things that I found out. Some of these findings are things that you might already know, in which case you could feel glad because and proud because you're so knowledgeable. And some of these things are things that you may not know, in which case you could feel glad and proud that you are learning new things. So the findings this week are the Great Emu War, the modulation of sound signals, and the band Vomit. All right, on to the findings. I went on vacation a couple weeks ago. I went to Illinois, and one of the things we did there was go to a zoo. This zoo happened to have a lot of Australian animals, like the kangaroo, um, possibly a kookaburra, but most notably an emu. The emu is a large bird and it looks pretty tough. They get to be about 1.9 meters tall or six feet tall and they run at 31 kilometers per hour and they're the second largest living bird next to the ostrich. And when I looked at this emu, I was reminded of the Great Emu War. The Great Emu War is something I learned about years ago in, in like, I think a lunch conversation with a coworker. It was pretty striking because around that time I had actually dug up the original Rogue video game. Rogue is the game that has inspired all the roguelikes, if you've heard of that genre of games. It's uh, Rogue was written in 1980. It ran on Unix. All the graphics were text. And when you died, you died forever. And yeah, it was a, it was a very monumental game. And something odd about it was I noticed that some of the first enemies you fought were represented by the character E. And then I looked up what E meant, and E meant emu. So why would the emu be here? Uh, it could be that the, the developers, Michael Toy and Glenn Witchman, had seen an emu and thought that would be a really tough thing to run into in a dungeon. But I suppose it is possible that they did hear about the Great Emu War, which happened roughly 50 years before the development of Rogue in 1932. So a number of forces collided back in 1930, 1932 in Western Australia. Obviously one of those forces is emus. There are 20,000 emus that migrated to Western Australia around that time because that's just part of their normal migration pattern. 
Just before that, the Australian government encouraged World War I vets to farm wheat over in Western Australia. So the emus ate a lot of their crops. It caused a lot of problems for the, the vets. And these vets requested machine guns because they had been in World War I and they knew that machine guns were very effective weapons. So the Minister of Defense said, okay, we'll send you some soldiers and they'll have some machine guns. And probably expecting this to be like a fantastic display of military power, I guess, they hired a cinematographer to go with. At Campion, there were 50 emus. They were out of range of the machine gunners when they got there. So people tried to herd the emus together, but the emus split up. And uh, they, the reports from the Australian military was that, quote, perhaps a dozen, end quote, birds were killed. And then they later planned an ambush of a thousand emus, but the machine gun jammed after killing 12 birds. So I should clarify that this is 1932, so it's not like every single soldier had a machine gun. They had actually sent out two machine guns. After firing 2,500 rounds of ammunition over the course of six days, no one knows exactly how many birds were killed. So Wikipedia says that one account estimates that it was 50 birds, but other accounts range from 200 to 500. A month later, and Major Meredith, who is the commander of this operation, said this. If we had a military division with the bullet carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. They are like Zulus, whom even dum-dum bullets could not stop. So they did try again later. They went back, the Minister of Defense went back to the Australian Senate and asked them to resume the war. And this time they claimed that they killed 986 emus. Um, I think the original population that, that had raided them was like 20,000. So a lot of toughness has been ascribed to the emu. But after rereading this Wikipedia article, I realized the main thing the emus have going for them is the ability to split up into small groups and run away. Which I guess is enough to thwart... Uh, the best ideas of the Australian army. To be fair, the Australian army of 1932. As part of my research during this last week at the Recurse Center, I learned about the modulation of sound signals. And as a result, I already gave this talk to the Recurse Center. So if you were there, then you've probably already heard this.
shout out to Colby. Um, but if you weren't, uh, you may have also read my blog post, which also covers the same ground. But uh, what can I say? This this is going to have the small findings flavor, whatever that is. But uh, modulation is using one sound signal to modify another one. And, uh, you know, modulation is definitely not limited to sound, but uh, you could use it with any two signals. But in the context of sound, you may have heard of something called frequency modulation or FM. That is how radio antennas broadcast audio signals to people's radio receivers. Something I never thought about before this week was why why modulate the frequency? Why not just send it? Send it with your antenna. Well, it turns out that the length of the antenna is inversely proportional to the frequency of the signal you're sending. So human hearing ranges mostly between 20 hertz and 20,000 hertz. So if you are sending something that is at the top of the human range of hearing at 20,000 hertz, you would need an antenna that is about 3.75 kilometers. So that's, that's a pretty big antenna and that's pretty hard to build. So how, how you send these relatively low frequencies um, 20,000 and lower is you basically send a higher signal, higher frequency signal, and then you modulate that. So you basically encode the signal you actually want to send in a higher frequency signal. So you could use something like a 100 megahertz signal instead of a 20 kilohertz signal. And then you could use an antenna that's only 75 centimeters. And then on the other end, you decode that signal and figure out what the actual uh, lower frequency signal that's being sent is. Another application of modulation is vocoding. Vo the vocoder is something that an engineer named Homer Dudley invented in the 1930s at Bell Labs. The original idea was, um, since audio signals are very rich, uh, they take up a lot of bandwidth when you want to send them over telephone wires. So he thought maybe there's a way where we could represent speech somehow um, and not send the entire audio signal. Uh, and as long as the person on, on the other end understands it as speech, then that's good enough and we've saved a lot of bandwidth. As it turned out, I think I think people at Bell Labs liked it, it seemed like, but it didn't get picked up. But um, some years later, it was used by the military to um, send, send, signal, uh, send speech from ship to ship across the world. Um, but the way it worked was he kind of used the model of the actual human voice to 
to build the vocoder. So the way the human voice works is you have, um, you have your throat, which generates um, a sound, kind of a, usually a somewhat pitched pure sound, like, oh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you could think of that as sort of the carrier signal. And then it goes up into your mouth and then your teeth and your tongue and all that mouth business kind of shapes and modulates uh, that sound. And that's, that's what gives it its speechy characteristics when you're speaking. So an interesting thing about this is, I, I didn't know this before either, but um, you may have heard of a, a talk box, uh, a guitar accessory that you could use to make your guitar sound like it's talking. Uh, famously done by Peter Frampton, um, which sounded something like this. I always thought that was a form of vocoder, but it, it's actually not. It's a different kind of modulation that actually makes the sound go from the amp into your mouth takes a tube and makes the sound go into your mouth and then your mouth modulates the sound by you talking. So instead of using your throat as the carrier signal, it uses the guitar or, or whatever sound, whatever musical sound as the carrier and then that gets modulated by your speech and another mic picks that up and it goes back out again, which is extremely clever and, and kind of the idea of projecting sound into your mouth is extremely weird. But the way the vocoder worked was it ditched that carrier signal and it didn't transmit that. And instead what it did was it figured out, oh, okay, these are the important bands for speech. These are the, the frequency ranges uh, that have the, the salient speech stuff going on in, in it. So uh, it would run the speech signal through a bunch of uh, bandpass filters. So it would get you know speech in ten different or sound in ten different ranges, and it would just filter those. So it would sort of separate it into ten separate signals, and then it would uh, pass it through another thing called an envelope follower. So if you ever looked at a waveform, it's a very complicated looking, um, very articulated and busy, the envelope follower just kind of traces the general shape of it in a smooth way, which is uh, mathematically simpler. Uh, so then what you actually transmit are those envelopes for those bands. And then on the other end, when you decode it, you know, oh, well, these are, these are, um, these are the bands that I need to modulate a carrier signal. So it on the other end, it generates its own carrier signal and then just uses these uh, envelope followers for the speech-specific bands to transform that carrier signal, and uh, thus you get kind of a kind of a famous robot voice sort of thing. Uh, and and of course. Uh, it was used by musicians later on in like the fifties onward. I think you, you may have heard of like Kraftwerk 
the you know the German uh, electronic music group uh, that did some robot voice talking uh, in their music. Sounds kind of like this. So the thing that uh, musicians did with this was they would use musical instruments, usually, as the carrier signals, and then they would, would use the envelope followers for the various bands of speech from their own speech, and then got this cool robot talking thing happening. I, I actually wondered what if I just used FM modulation instead of vocoding, how would that sound? Maybe there's an obvious thing out there that no musician has tried uh, that's actually awesome. But I find out it's, it's not awesome. You, you could go check out my blog post uh, if you want to hear what that sounds like. And I have a link there to a tool so that you can find out what you sound like when you are frequency, frequency modulating uh, some signal. I've been slowly ripping my CDs to MP3, which sounds like a very old-timey thing to do, and it sort of is, because I've moved from uh, basically listening to everything through streaming to last year to um, actually buying things and uh, listening to the MP3s uh, or um, taking my old CDs and and ripping those to MP3. Uh, I recently, I guess a couple months ago, ripped uh, the Entombed classic Left Hand Path, which is um, a very influential death metal album from what might be considered the first wave, although... Uh, it, it might be considered the first popular wave uh, because, you know, preceding them, there was sort of proto-death metal like Early Death and uh, Celtic Frost, but, uh, oh, and Possessed, of course. But uh, I, think, I think the bands like uh, Entombed and Morbid Angel, that, that group of bands were the first bands that people considered like uh, death metal and nothing else and sort of uh, sort of started codifying death metal that way but was what was interesting was there was a band that I was not familiar with that was mentioned in the liner notes of that entombed album and that was Vomit who are apparently from Norway and it was pretty helpful that they mentioned that Vomit was from Norway because I looked at Encyclopedia Metallum and there are there are nine bands named Vomit listed there. This band um, never released an album. They only had demos. But I found uh, that somebody had done a limited pressing of some demos and rehearsal tapes of theirs of a thousand copies, and I was too late for that, but I saw that the label uh, released the MP3s uh, under a Creative Commons license, which 
I don't think I've ever seen before. Um, I've definitely seen things release, released, uh, new things released under Creative Commons licenses, but um, taking old demos from 1989 and releasing them through Creative Commons is kind of an interesting new thing to me. So I, I checked it out, and it, it, is, it is a really good set of demos. Um, it has... It's very, it's very much like uh, early death metal, like Entombed. But of course, uh, you know, the interesting thing is um, there are a bunch of bands from that era that were death metal-like, but death metal hadn't been codified yet, so not everything is exactly as you would expect. And uh, yeah, there's, there's kind of a lot of, of Sepultura, Metallica, Kind of stuff going on in there, but it's it's very raw, and kind of freewheeling. Um, just realized I, I I said something that could be said about quite a few bands like Repulsion, etc. So uh, this this isn't so much about how good or bad Vomit is, but the finding is more that they exist. They released their um, they or somebody released their album under Creative Commons. And I don't know if they they cared about being a successful death metal band, because honestly, if you're a successful death metal band, uh, it's not going to make you rich. Uh, sorry, there's a plane, plane going overhead. Very, very disrespectful to death metal pioneers vomit. Okay, it's gone. But yeah, you know, even if you are um, entombed or or carcass or um, deicide, uh, you you still <laughs> you you are not uh, free of financial problems. But uh, I, I I really think that they had a lot of elements that uh, very successful uh, death metal bands from that wave had. The other interesting thing is that their bassist and vocalist went on to become a Christian fundamentalist. His name was Kittle Kittleson, and Vomit used to be friends with Euronymous from Mayhem, uh, one of the infamous second wave black metal bands that uh, did things like burn churches. I think they burned a few churches and it was real and it was a big deal. But uh, Kittle Kittleson, for reasons uh, I haven't been able to find out, became a, a Christian fundamentalist and is now also critical of uh, Christian metal. He, he thinks that uh, that's not in keeping with uh, real Christian faith. I actually have a few friends from high school who were uh, into metal, as I was, and listened to Slayer and whatnot, and were not particularly religious, who later became Christian. They, uh, some of them became sort of mainstream Christians. One of them joined the University Bible Fellowship, which uh, 
is involved in people's lives well beyond university and is uncontroversially considered a cult. And uh, he, he devoted his life to it. And I once emailed him during college and uh, he warned me about brain damage from metal. So I think that, I think this kind of conversion from metal to either mild Christianity or mainstream Christianity or uh, very intense Christianity is not unheard of. Anyway, regardless, he made some good demos. That's it for this episode's findings. Thanks for listening. If you have any findings you want to share, any comments you want to make, any any texts you want to type and send to me in general, uh, you could send that to smallfindings at fastmail.com. See you next time. Uh-huh.